Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that we can know you and we can listen to you. And so, Father, as we look at your word now, please would you do that for us. Please, by your Spirit, would you speak and would you give us ears to hear what you have to say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I wonder um, where you would say is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Uh, which um, country, which, which context, as you think about it, would you say is the biggest threat uh, to the church today? Uh, last week, if you were with us, we thought a bit about the persecuted church, didn't we? Uh, we thought about places like Afghanistan or, or North Korea, uh, where Christians face the constant threat of opposi- opposition and violence. And so maybe, maybe that's where your mind goes when you think about dangerous places to be a Christian. Uh, but despite the physical danger of places like that, the reality is that it's in those places where the church is growing and has been growing for some time. It's in countries like Syria or Iran, known for their anti-Christian ideology, that the church has seen huge growth over the past decade. And so the places in the world where Christianity is declining, where it's under threat, are not necessarily the places where persecution is the fiercest. Instead, it's it's in the West, it's in Europe and here in the UK, where in many ways the church faces its greatest threat. Because so often it's not the pressure of persecution that will destroy a church, Instead, it's the much more subtle but no less dangerous temptation to compromise. It's the the persistent pressure to just fit in, to get on board, to get in line with the values and beliefs of a modern, progressive, tolerant society like ours. You see, as Christians living in the UK, we might not face the pain of outright persecution. We might not be worried about the Taliban coming knocking on our door. But that doesn't mean we're not in danger. In fact, Jesus warns churches like ours to beware the danger of drift, to watch out for the slow and subtle temptation to compromise. And that is what this letter to the church in Pergamum is all about. If this is your first time with us this morning, then you've joined us in the middle of looking at a series of letters from the risen Lord Jesus to seven different churches around Asia around 2,000 years ago. These letters that we're looking at are specific letters given, written to specific churches. But as we've seen as well, we've seen that though they were written to the church back then, They are also written for the church today. Each letter has that repeated phrase that we've already read. It's there in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these letters are for us. And so as we listen to Jesus speak to the church back then, we need to ask what the Spirit is saying to us today. So what was the situation for the church Back then in Pergamum, what does Jesus have to say to them? Well, the first thing we see is that he praises them for their faithfulness in the face of opposition. 
faithfulness in the face of opposition. Look at uh, verse 13 with me. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Just as we've seen in Ephesus and in Smyrna over the last few weeks, Pergamum was a tough place to be a Christian. So tough, in fact, that Jesus talks about it not just as the place where Satan lives, but where Satan has his throne. And straight away this morning, talk of Satan's throne might make us think that Pergamum was a bit like Mordor from Lord of the Rings. Uh, Perhaps it is a place full of dark towers and wicked, uh, evil things, witchcraft, the occult, all that sort of thing going on. Obviously evil. But that wasn't the case. Uh, Pergamon was a a highly respected city in the ancient world. It was key in the Roman Empire. It was the political capital of Asia Minor at the time. It had a massive library uh, full of learning and progress. It was also a city full of temples to to all sorts of gods, including the great and spectacular temple to Zeus. But as well as this variety of gods, as well as a magnificent library, Pergamon was also the first city in the region to build a temple to Caesar himself. And so people were also encouraged to to pay homage to, to worship the emperor as a god. And it seems, as we look, that that most people in the city at the time were pretty happy with this arrangement. That's mainly because of all these gods, none of them were demanding exclusive worship. Not even the emperor. In fact, it was a a mark of the the city's tolerance that that all of this could exist together. People could take part in multiple sacrifices and visit multiple temples, and that was all fine. In fact, it was encouraged. And so you see, Pergamum, it was a a thriving, sophisticated, pluralistic society. Much more like London than Mordor. But just as with Smyrna, it it was this mix, this melting pot of religion, politics and progress that made life incredibly difficult for Christians. Whilst most of society was happy to worship any and every god that was put before them, That wasn't the case for Christians. No, no, they they followed Jesus Christ. They worshipped the one who claimed to be the only true God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so for Christians, Jesus wasn't just another God to stick on the shelf alongside all the others. No, he demanded exclusive allegiance. Christians worshipped Jesus alone. And that made life difficult for them. Because whilst Pergamon was tolerant of most things, it was intolerant of Jesus, intolerant of his exclusive claims. The Roman authorities wouldn't allow Christians to just opt out of worshipping Caesar. No, no, failure to to celebrate, to, to worship the emperor like everybody else was, that wasn't an option. And so the pressure for Christians to conform was intense. So intense that it seems in verse 13 that Antipas was killed for stepping out of line, executed for remaining faithful to Jesus alone. 
And so we can begin to see, can't we, why Jesus describes this place as where Satan has his throne. It was a city full of deception, full of lies. Attractive, progressive, tolerant on the surface, but underneath, firmly opposed to Jesus and anyone who worshipped him. Pergamon was a tough place to be a Christian. It was where Satan has his throne. And so once again, Jesus says to the Christians living there, I know, I know where you live, he says. I know the pressure you're under. I know the spiritual battle that you fight. And I know that despite all of that, you have remained faithful. Verse 13, you've remained true to my name. The church in Pergamum had held on to Jesus. They had stuck with him, even when one of them was killed for it. And so just imagine that if you can, just for a minute. Imagine that after this service, the police arrived and took me or one of the other elders away in a police van. Imagine we were locked up for hate speech, thrown in prison for crimes against the state, executed for blasphemy. These things are realities for many people around the world today. But how do you feel if they happened here? Would you come back next week? Would you wonder whether we ought to perhaps change our message just a little bit? Whether we should stop talking about Jesus being the only way? It would be tempting, wouldn't it? I'd certainly find it tempting. Tempting to to compromise. Tempting to to just go quiet, to, to try and blend in a bit more. But that's not what the Christians in Pergamum did. No, they remained faithful. They held on to Jesus no matter what. And so Jesus says, I know. I know what you're facing. I know where you live, and I know your faithfulness. And again, he says the same thing to his people today. Obviously, we don't live under an oppressive regime like Rome. No one is going to kill us for the things that we believe. But we do live in a society where the state defines what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, and then demands that everybody accepts and even celebrates those things. We do live in a culture that prides itself on being tolerant and accepting of all. And it is incredibly intolerant of people who step out of line. Anyone who, who disagrees with its position on issues like beginning and end of life or sexuality and gender. I was speaking to a, a Christian teacher last week who was wondering for the first time whether it would be that long before they could no longer do their job and hold to the things they believe the Bible says is true. And so to the Christian trying to remain faithful to Jesus in today's often intolerant culture, Jesus says, I know. I see your faithfulness. I see what you're doing. I see what you're going through for the sake of my name. I know. Jesus knows where they live. He he sees the faithfulness of the Christians in Pergamum. He knows where you live and he sees your faithfulness. However, that's not all he sees. It's not all he knows about the church in Pergamon. They, they might have been faithful uh, of, from pressure from the outside, 
But Jesus also knows there's an equally deadly danger from within. You have been faithful, he says, but you've also compromised. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We said right back at the start of this series in Revelation that one of the best ways to, to kind of understand this book is to know the Old Testament better. And here's a good example of that because in order to warn the church in Pergamum about the danger they're in, Jesus points to an incident way back in Israel's history. The story of Balaam is found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And the short version is that a man called Balak, the king of Moab, hires a pagan prophet called Balaam to get rid of God's people by placing a curse on them. However, every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse the Israelites, God stops him and gives him only words of blessing. And so after a few attempts, Balaam just kind of gives up and goes home. And it appears that the danger for Israel is over. But it's not. Because a little later on in Numbers 31, Balaam comes up with another more subtle plan. He decides to, to get all the beautiful young Moabite women to go and mingle with the Israelite men, to seduce them, get them into bed. And once they've done that, once they've captivated the men of Israel, well, it won't take them long to get them to join in with a bit of idol worship as well. That's something that Balaam knows will bring God's curse. That's the plan. When the full-on attack fails go for the subtle approach. And it works. The men of Israel are seduced and they're lured not just into bed but into idol worship, uh, sacrificing to false gods. And so Jesus says, here, look, the same thing is happening in Pergamon. There are some in the church who have remained faithful in the face of outright opposition and yet have been seduced, tempted by Satan's more subtle approach. And so they've ended up compromising. What does that compromise look like? Well, we don't know exactly, but Jesus says here in verse 14 that some had compromised in the area of sexual immorality and idol worship. If you lived back in Pergamum in those days, then pretty much every social event took place in the temple. If you were invited out for dinner, you weren't taken to Pizza Express. You would have gone down to the local temple and probably had uh, some food that had been sacrificed to one idol or another. And actually, these, these temples, they, they weren't just places for social gatherings. They were also places for business. People found employment there, work opportunities, deals were made. And then after the, the feasting and the business was done, well, then there would probably be some sort of after-party a bit of entertainment, which basically meant getting drunk and having sex with a temple prostitute. And so many in the church would have grown up in this environment. This is what they were used to before they became Christians. This was the culture they knew. It was normal for them and for their friends. And so can you see, can you imagine how difficult it might have been to, to step away from that world? How immediately isolating it would have been to say to your colleagues or your friends or your potential business partner that you wouldn't be coming to the temple on Friday nights anymore. 
Stepping away from that world would have been costly. And so it seems that there were some in the church that were, that were wondering and even teaching that maybe perhaps you didn't need to step away at all. Maybe they'd convinced themselves that, that it was fine to go along to the temple because you weren't going to get involved with all that idle stuff. That wasn't for you. After all, they knew that these idols were, were fake, they were false, they, did, they didn't really exist. And so what, what is there to worry about? And anyway, when it came to the after party, well, was it, was it really such a big deal if you got a bit drunk, fooled around with a few girls? What's the problem with that? In other words, it seems that the teaching of Balaam that Jesus is talking about here, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, was essentially that as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't really matter that much how you behave. That it's possible to belong to the church and to blend in with the culture. To follow Jesus and to follow the crowd at the same time. But Jesus says no. No, that's a lie. Just as we saw last week that it's impossible to follow Jesus and avoid opposition, so Jesus says it's impossible to follow him and continue to look just like the world around you. And I have to say that, that I find this, one of the, the areas I find this hardest to accept is with my children. If you're a parent here this morning, and if like Matt and Nicola, you are committed to raising your children to know and love the Lord Jesus. And if by God's grace they, they do come to follow him, then you need to know that they will not fit in with the world around them. They won't. And I know how much that, that goes against our, our parental instincts, doesn't it? I know how tempting it is to want to be able to give our kids both. But Jesus says following him and fitting in don't go together. There will come a time when we and our children have to choose between courage or compromise. And it's in those times that, that we have to remember what Jesus is saying here. We need to remember how dangerous the road to compromise really is. You can see how dangerous it is in the, in the way these letters in Revelation are structured for us. In, in letters 1 and 7, Jesus speaks to the church in danger of losing its love for him. We saw that in Ephesus, didn't we? In letters 2 and 6, it's the danger of outright persecution. We saw that with Smyrna. But these letters in the middle, letters 3, 4, and 5, are all to do with compromise. Pergamum is flirting with false teaching. Thyatira that we're going to look at next week seems to have gone even further down the road of immorality and sin. And so by the time we get to the third church, to the church in Sardis, we find that it's dead. And so can you see, even within these three letters, Jesus warns us about the dangerous downward spiral of compromise. How slowly, subtly, we are dragged away from Jesus, not by the outright persecution, but by the almost imperceptible pressure to just fit in. 
And so can you see why Jesus is so concerned for this church, so concerned about this issue? It's why he rebukes the whole church and not just those guilty of compromise. Because he knows that that unless false teaching like this is, is addressed, unless it's cut out of the church, that it will spread like gangrene and destroy them. Jesus says some in the church are holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But, verse 16, it is the whole church that needs to repent. Rather than point the finger or, or look down on those that we think might have compromised and just gone with the culture, Jesus says, no, all of you need to repent. None of us are perfect in this area, and so all of us need to turn away from compromise and sin and come back to Jesus. All of us need to, to stop listening to the voices in our culture and instead listen to the voice of our king. We need to listen to the one who, verse 12, has the sharp, double-edged sword. In other words, we've got to listen to the one who, who wields ultimate authority. Yes, governments and regimes hold some level of power. They, they wield a sword of sorts, don't they? And it might seem as though they are the ones calling the shots. They are the ones steering the culture. But Jesus reminds the church in Pergamum and he reminds us that he is the true king who wields the true sword of divine justice. And just as we saw back in chapter 1, it's a sword that, that comes from his mouth. It's a, it's a weird image, isn't it? But, but it basically means that Jesus is the one who judges by his word. When, when Jesus returns and the day of judgment finally comes, he will judge this world by his word. The same word that he has already spoken, the same word that we are reading this morning. And so Jesus says, look, if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to have courage and not compromise, then you need to listen to my voice. You need to listen to the one who wields ultimate authority, the one who holds the double-edged sword. But more than that, we need to listen to the one who promises us life with him forever. Look at verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I remember just as the way that Jesus introduces himself to the church is particularly relevant for their situation, so is the way he ends with a promise. And so here he says to the church in Pergamum, I will give you some of the hidden manna. Manna was the, the bread that God provided for his people back in Exodus. As they wandered through the wilderness, they learned what it was to, to trust God, to rely on him to provide everything they needed. And so again, for the Christians here in Pergamum, those surrounded by idols, idols that promised to provide, promised to give and give, but only ever take, Jesus reminds them of God's gracious provision in the past. They need to trust him. But more than that, because I think this manner also points us forwards. It points us forwards to the time when God will provide the ultimate feast, the great banquet of the king in the new creation. And that links to the white stone. 
It's not that clear what this white stone represents, but in ancient times, a white stone was often used as a, an indicator, a kind of ticket that gave you access to particular events or meetings. If you had a white stone, you were on the guest list. And so again, for Christians who had been pushed to the edge of society, for Christians who felt marginalized and, and so the, felt the constant pull, the constant temptation to, to just join in with the world, to the ones who have been persuaded to go along to the pagan parties and join in with the temple feasts, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that because I will give you access to the greatest feast in history. There's a stone, a, a ticket with your name on it. A ticket that will give you entrance to the celebration of the King of Glory. So stop listening to them. Stop listening to the voices of the world and instead listen to me, says Jesus. Trust me. Follow me. Even when it puts you at odds with the culture, even when it means your name is dragged through the mud because I have given you a new name. And one day I will welcome you into the banquet of the King where you will live in my presence, in my glory for all eternity. So have courage. Don't compromise. And know that I am coming soon. Let's pray. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Our Father in heaven, that is our prayer. Father, would you give us the courage to stand? Help us to, to know, to love, to trust, to follow our risen King, the one who has died for us and guaranteed us life eternal with him. And Father, would that knowledge, would that truth give us the courage to stand even against the devil's lies and accusations, even against the pull of our culture. Father, will we be those who stand for the Lord Jesus? And we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing again now. And we've seen, haven't we, that, that Jesus calls us to, to focus on him, to, to fix our eyes on him, to remember what he has done for us so that we would have courage to stand for him. And so that's what our next two songs are about. So as the band start, let's stand together and sing praise to our King.